Welcome back from the fall break. You seem to be in a very rambunctious mood from the decibel level that I, I hear rising um, uh, toward me. I am taking a survey on an issue that has become uh, current in the university. Uh, if we'd like to show, have a show of hands. Uh, how many of you know the name of your preceptor? I thought that this would... Uh, I, <laughs> why did eight people not raise their hand? No, that's, that's all right. Uh, I rearranged the schedule, as you will recall, slightly. I mean, rearranged the schedule of, the, of our readings in the Canterbury Tales, reversing the Sumner's Tale and the Friar's Tale, with a purpose. It's quite often um, in Chaucer that you only uh, fully understand what you have already read after you have gone by it. I suppose this is not uncommon in a certain sense. Chaucer is a oral poet, I keep telling you this, that is to say he lived in an oral culture, yet he writes that kind of literature that we're aware of we're familiar with in modernism that constantly invites us to go back, to look back to an earlier page to see what it was perhaps that he was uh, hinting at uh, there. But with regard to the friar in particular, it seems to me that his description in the general prologue, which begins on page 26, and which is one of the longest of the descriptions of a uh, of a uh, pilgrim is full, more replete with uh, hints, uh, thematic suggestions that are going to be taken up than perhaps any other of the uh, any other of the uh, descriptions. So I want to begin. It's always a good idea to begin the reading of a tale by reminding yourself of the teller. A frere there was, a wanton, and a merry, a limitur, a full solemne mon. Now those two adjectives ought to be rather surprising and counter-indicative in a way, right? A friar, and what is he that, you know, what are the adjectives that Chaucer uses to uh, modify or explain this friar? Wanton on the one hand, Mary uh, on the other. Wanton doesn't quite yet have the entirely negative mean, meaning it gets in later English, but it still means something like uh, you know, sex, sexually uh, suggestive or out for a good time or something of that sort. It might remind you, actually, of the opening of the description of the monk. Friar is a kind of monk, after all, if uh, and that there he is described as a manly man to Ben and Abbot Abla. There the sentence works the opposite way around. That is, uh, it seems to be about what it takes to be an abbot, but the phrase a manly man that seems to be pointing toward masculine sexuality, a theme that has been very amply uh, developed, he's brought his lunch. What is in your lunch? Is there enough for all of us? Uh, 
the, the suggestion uh, the, the, there is that what it takes uh, to be an abbot is some sort of, you know, sexual prowess. He does the same thing here, but in a, you know, in, in a reverse or, order. In all the orders for is known that Conso Muchel of Dalliance and Fair Langaja, his next claim to fame, in fact, his first claim to fame, the first thing that he can do that is going to be important, does have a literary valence here. That is, uh, he is a good talker, and he's going to be a very good talker when he comes to the... Uh, <laughs> that's all right. I, I am harmless. I will, <laughs> I will move over to a neutral, uh, a, a neutral corner. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good talker, and we can expect him to be a good talker. Now think how this fits in with what we saw in the Sumner tale. The Sumner tells a tale about a friar who is a marvelous talker. That is one of the best sermons, medieval or otherwise, that you will ever read, the sermon that the friar in the Sumner tale gives on rap. What is so peculiar about it is the vast moral distance between its meaning and the character of the preacher, the friar himself, and also, of course, the fact that he doesn't understand the moral implications of his uh, own uh, of his own of his own morality. But Chaucer has already prepared us for all this in a certain sense by these themes that are very early introduced uh, into the uh, into the description of the friar. In case there's any doubt about what direction things are really going, you have the immortal uh, uh, couplet. Uh, he had made full many a mariage of younger women at his own coast. That is, it was hard to get married for some young women in the Middle Ages because they didn't have dowries, so he provided this for them. Unto his order, he was a noble post. So you find out why it was that the young women were having to get married uh, in the first place. And this double entendre then, that runs all the way through his description and so many others uh, exemplifies, I think, in a really magnificent way, this conflict or contrast between the spirit and the letter, the surface and the substance, which when you actually get to the tales of Fragment B, Group 3, Wife of Bath, Sumner, and Friar, is going to be the main theme that is taken up uh, over a long period of time. Now, this is as careful as anything that, say, uh, Henry James or James Joyce would have done. I mean, we know that Joyce, in writing Ulysses, must have had large charts hanging on the wall with diagrams and arrows and so on just to get all that kind of stuff right. We don't think of Chaucer as being necessarily that kind of writer, but if you look at it from this point of view, you can see that he is. He's looking at this uh, in a uh, holistic uh, manner. Full well beloved and familiar was he with Franklin's over all his country, and ache with worthy women in the tune. For he had power of confession, as said himself, more than a curate. Now, that is a theme that then gets developed extensively in the Sumner's tale. It's that subterranean theme of the power of confession that comes out of that obscure Latin work that I gave you a handout, the De Periculis Novissimorum Temporum, 
everybody's uh, bedtime reading, a diatribe in eschatological exegesis against the friars written at the University of Paris in the 1250s, and a book less likely to sort of cross over into the vernacular bloodstream of a great popular poem like the Canterbury Tales, I cannot imagine, yet Chaucer does it. I mean, the friar represents the power of confession. If, if you follow my little diptych formulation, that uh, what the friar is supposed to represent is God's mercy as administered in the sacrament of penance, uh, the functionary of which would be a priest hearing a confession. So naturally, you're going to have an emblem of a priest hearing a confession right at the very center of the Sumner's tale. And of course, it's grotesque and funny because you actually, instead of having the penitent kneel down uh, in front of the confessor, you have the confessor kneeling at the bedside of the rich guy begging him for some money. First he asks him, says, you know, make your confession. And remember what he says? He says, no, I already did it about 15 minutes ago to my curat, referring to the local parochial uh, uh, secular uh, priest. He said, I don't need to make another confession unless I want to do so out of my extreme humility, which is another great line. Remember what the friar says without skipping a beat? Yit me then of the gold. Okay, since you can't make a confession, second best or next best on this list would be to give me some gold. Now, <laughs> the way Chaucer wraps this up in the description here is in this great line, for of his order, he was licentiate. He has a license to go around and beg and collect money, but he also is licentious. It's pretty much like the wonderful pun on the word sensing that you get in the Miller's Tale. Remember, Absalom wanders around the church waving the incense pot He's actually set, checking out all the good-looking women, and it says he's sensing the weavers of the parish fasta. He's sensing them uh, all right in that kind of double sense. This is wonderful uh, Chaucerian stuff, and it's only after a certain point into the course that we're really prepared uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, un understand it. Then, we, then again, uh, in this description, we turn to the theme of what you have on the outside and what you have on the inside. The question is, how can you tell that a penitent is truly uh, contrite? One of the steps of a legitimate confession uh, was contrition. You had to really seriously be sorry that you had offended God. And this is a kind of interior psychological thing that can't be told from the outside, necessarily. So people looked for, the, the writers of these confession manuals and so on, looked for external signs. Does the penitent look pallid? Does the penitent tremble when he or she is making a confession? And above all, are there tears? Does the penitent actually weep while making the confession? That was always a pretty good sign that you were seriously uh, uh, penitent. But what does our friar say? He says, that's kind of an old way of doing it. We've got a new paradigm that has come in uh, to this now. 
people are so hard-hearted that it's hard to get them to cry about anything anymore. Because the way you can really tell that somebody is penitent is how if they give their money to friars. That's a dead uh, uh, giveaway. That's a little bit heavy-handed, uh, perhaps, but, but it uh, is uh, it's totally consistent with this exploration, deep exploration of the themes of surface and substance. Uh, hey, uh, for many a man so hard is of his herta, he may not wape, although him sore a smerta. Therefore, instead of weeping and prayeras, men mote yave silver to the povera freras. His tippet, that is the tippet of his hood, is all full of little needles and pins and little doodads that he hands out. Uh, in the old days, even in this country, there were tinkers, as they were called, who went around to these rural communities. You've probably heard, the, you still use the verb, tinkering around with something. A tinker was somebody who was uh, pretty good at mending. These guys had a very dubious uh, reputation, and they carried around with them little gifts that they would give to the housewives. Fuller brush salesmen in a later generation did the same thing. When I was 20 years old, the great genre of dirty jokes all had to do with traveling salesmen and what they do with various daughters of farmers and so on. This is a, this is a direct tradition. It's hard to recognize at first, but it's going back to guys uh, like, uh, like this, uh, like this uh, friar. What is the textual control of such a description? The 10th chapter, <laughs> remember, I told you, the 10th chapter of almost anything, uh, in, in all the Gospels, by some extraordinary chance, this is the place where Jesus commissions his disciples and tells them what they are to do. Go two by two. Take nothing with you for the journey. Eat what is put before you. We've already seen how the uh, friar in the Sumner's tale schematically, over a period of about ten lines at the beginning of that tale, violates each one of these things. And the reason he does it is on account of this textual control. You wouldn't know it, but that's exactly what he's doing. Well, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the major textual controls also here in the, in, in the uh, description uh, of the, uh, uh, the, the description of the friars. But another one is the whole lore about St. Francis, the most famous of all friars. And of course, the, the great story about Francis is his giving up all his uh, worldly goods. Uh, he, of course, it was easy for him to do because they were actually his fathers. He went around giving away his father's uh, worldly goods. And when his father got annoyed at this and called him before the uh, bishop uh, of Assisi, you've probably seen the famous painting by Giotto, very, very well known, the most famous streak in history, uh, this is. Uh, St. Francis, uh, or the bishop, stripped himself naked of all his clothes, gave them back to his father, quoted the Bible, naked came I from my mother's womb, and so forth. From now on, I have only one father, that our father, who art in heaven. And so and that's one of the great stories about St. Francis. But the other is his moment of conversion. And this seems to be, well, they both seem to be true stories. 
but this one has a lot of social truth in it as well. You have to imagine yourself in a little miserable medieval town with streets that are about as wide as this platform uh, here, and it's dark and they're crooked and so on. And Francis comes walking around along, and he turns the corner, and there, as far away from him as you are from me, is a leper. We don't even have leprosy much, hardly exists in the modern world, but you know what it is. The most hideous, uh, ferocious, fearsome of contagious diseases. What does Francis do? He embraces and he kisses the leper. That's where the leper what, what else is a leper doing here? He says he knew the taverns in every tune and every hosteler and tapestry bet than a lazar or a begastere. He knew the barmaids much better than he knew a leper or a beggar. Now these are not just kind of random ideas that are, it makes, it's coherent. Chaucer is always coherent at the literal level, even if you don't understand the uh, set of, usually, I'll say, nine times out of ten, uh, there is a powerful coherence even in the literal sense if you don't get the, the background. But the moment you see the background, uh, it is uh, perhaps uh, even uh, more, uh, more powerful. I don't have time to do all this because we want to go to the, the wonderful Friar's Tale, but notice that the end of the description is once again devoted to his powers of articulation uh, and to uh, speech. It says that uh, he didn't live like a cloisterer with threadbare cope, as is a pope or a scolaire. Who on the pilgrimage is? The clerk. Those are almost words taken directly from the description of the clerk. Pope or a scolaire wearing a threadbare Cope, uh, coat. This is not, he says, this is not uh, going to be uh, our, uh, our, our uh, friar. But he was like a meister or a pope. Of double worsted was his semi-cope that ruined it as a bell out of the press. Somewhat ellipsed, which is a great word. Not in Middle English, it's not lisped, it's lipsed. I think we ought to reintroduce that one too. Somewhat ellipsed for his wantonness to mock his anguish sweet upon the tongue, and in his harping, when that he had sung, his hand twinkled in his head a rick, and, and uh, uh, so on. This is a uh, marvelous exterior, and um, we've already had plenty of hints that it's not much of an interior, and those are going to be the themes that are then actually taken up in the uh, in the friar's uh, in the friar's tale, in this in this fragment as well, and I've already pointed this out, but I, I you, you go back and enjoy it again. Chaucer has done more dramatic manipulation than he does in many other places uh, in the uh, in the Canterbury Tales. Why do the Sumner and the part and the uh, friar hate each other? The theological reason for this, or the sort of moral reason, is that they are both, in St. Paul's words, children of wrath. We were by nature the children of wrath, says St. Paul. They are, in other words, old men. I don't know how old they are chronologically, 
but they're 150 years old uh, spiritually. Nonetheless, they have to have some surface uh, explanation for their hostility to each other. And as usual, the suggested, uh, the, the suggested topic is economic. There are only a certain number of people out there to be extorted and so on. And both the friar and the sumner are after the same limited market. This is uh, made, to be the case, made to be the case as well. But in the prologue to the friar's tale, and then again in the, in the prologue to the sumner's tale, you get a dramatization of this conflict between two speakers who are using literature, using poetry, using their stories more or less as guided missiles, that is, to direct heat toward one another. Now, since all of these three poems, Wife of Bath, Sumner, and Friar, are also deeply connected with formal Christian scriptural exegesis, that is to say, the interpretation of the scriptures, we're reminded what it is that such interpretation is supposed to reveal. And that, of course, is love. St. Augustine's whole system, the system that D.W. Robertson outlined for you there in the uh, preface to Chaucer, is built around Augustine's theory of the twin loves. I gave this to you on the board one time. Caritas, cupiditas. Right, where uh, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, redefines the Ten Commandments and says they boil down to two things. Love of God and love of neighbor for the sake of God. St. Augustine says this motion of the soul, that is to say that motion of the soul that leads me to love my neighbor as myself, I call that caritas. And this other love, the love of money and other material things, he calls cupiditas. And that's actually the Latin word that gets translated then in the King James Bible as the love of money. In the phrase, the love of money is the root of all evil. So here you have two expert literary artists, the Sumner and the Friar, both of whom are dealing with the exegetical, hermeneutic, or interpretive theme. But what are they doing it for? They're doing it to project hate, violence, verbal uh, violence. Uh, it's, uh, it's horrible in a way, but of course it's very beautiful in the way that it has been, uh, that it has been constructed. <laughs> Harry Bailey has his role to play here. Remember Harry Bailey, as he will describe himself at the end, or, or actually it is the uh, uh, partner who describes him, but we all agree with the description. Harry Bailey, who is most enveloped in sin, he is the most worldly of all the pilgrims in a way. He's a bartender. You know. He's, he has no claim to any sort of spiritual insight Yet he's the one who time and time again is called upon to make peace among warring ecclesiastics. And the friar, at the end of the life prologue, imitating the, the partner who'd actually interrupted her sermon, if you remember, imitating the partner, says, boy, 
you are one hell of a preacher. But he kind of laughs and says, you know, you're getting into deep philosophy here. School, Matt Kerr, he says. Uh, why don't we just keep it at the level of gum? Keep it at the level of game. And I'm going to do that now because I'm going to tell a great story about a Sumner. Uh, and already you can see that something bad is coming. The Sumner kind of looks over after him. Uh, he says, you know, don't you, <coughs> that of a Sumner may no good be said. He prays that none of you were able to pay a Sumner. And he gives a definition. What is a Sumner? A Sumner is a runner up and down with uh, bills for fornication and is beaten at every edges at every town as end of. And Harry Bailey has to say, oh, come on now. Don't start your tale this way. Uh, this is a terrible, and, you know, but the Sumner is going to be able to say, don't worry about this. Uh, when I get my turn, I'll really tell a tale about a friar. So you have the suspense already built up, but you see what the motive is here. It's as far away from Karakos as it possibly could be. Uh, it is uh, wicked, uh, evil will. Well, the friar's tale is a beauty. They're all beauties, but this one is really a beauty. Uh, <laughs> because it turns out that it's about a sumner who is more literal-minded than the devil. Let's take some... Uh, you, know, you might have thought it was a good in the Sumner's tale, to find a friar who's a great spiritual exegete but can't even understand the uh, spiritual meaning of a fart. That seems to me to be a bit of a stretch already. But back in the friar's tale, you really got a Sumner who's more literal-minded uh, than the devil. <clears throat> as the tale begins, we see immediately, as we so often do, that the character being described in the tale is both continuous and discontinuous with the pilgrim described in the general prologue. This is like almost a surreal aspect of Chaucer that people have not spent uh, enough attention on, it seems to me. Where is the locus of reality in which these characters exist? For example, the wife of Bath becomes a character, and a, a character who is alluded to, in the merchant's tale. Merchant starts telling a tale about some fictitious characters, and the wife of Bath appears as an uh, allusion uh, in there. We don't know exactly where these uh, characters are, but this Sumner sounds an awful lot like the Sumner we've had described in the general prologue, and particularly it sounds that way in terms of his specialization. His specialization are sexual sins, he has uh, mandaments, that is to say, summonses, uh, subpoenas for witchcraft, bowdery, diffamation, avowatry, churches, ravers, and of testimonies, of contracts, and lack of sacramentes, of usury, and simony also. But certes, especially, lechers did he greatest woe. His specialty are sexual sins, Adultery, fornication, prostitution, all this kind of stuff. And the way he does it is clearly a racket. He has friends among the prostitutes and the pimps who point out to him their customers. He goes after them and he uh, finds, uh, finds them and so on. He says he could spare of lecher's owner toe to teach in him 
to four and twenty more. He lets a couple of people off, so long as they're, they're stool pigeons, uh, uh, st- stool pigeons uh, for him. Now it's at this point <coughs> that the uh, the Sumner uh, interrupts again. Do you remember you remember the wonderful thing in the uh, in the Sumner's tale where you get an interruption? Uh, after a whole list of crimes have been uh, listed, and the friar says, "No, we don't really do that." When he, he, the Sumner accuses friars of doing everything that you can imagine doing, and then he says they also erase the names that they've written down in the book. Why? And he, at that point, he says, "No, that one is not true. By implication, all the rest of them are true." The same thing uh, you have uh, here. He's, he says. He says uh, we, we, that he uses these uh, stool pigeons uh, to get at the prostitutes. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, friar says, we've, we've been ut of, of here correction, his correction. The hand of us, no jurisdiction, nor shall never harm of all or leave. The, the archdeacon has no authority over us. And the comeback to this from the Sumner is, hate her. What a great phrase. I mean, Chaucer never introduces these swear words accidentally. Remember when the partner interrupts the wife of Bath? You've been a, a begod and be Saint John. You've been a noble preacher in this talk, pointing to the gospel from which all her examples have come. Peter is the very image of the Pope. That is, he stands for the church. And so here he is being invoked, Peter. So bend the women of the Stevens, quote this summoner, uh, e put ut of her cura. That is, the, uh, the whores in the whorehouses, just like the friars, are exempt. Pace with mischance and with misadventure, uh, thus said our host, and let him tell his tala. So he starts telling his tale. And his tale is about, uh, about a summoner who went riding through the countryside. But notice a couple things that he says, says uh, about him uh, early on. He says, Ricked as Judas had a purse's smaller and was a thief, Ricked so a thief was paid. That is to say, this Sumner. Now what is being referred to here? Remember that in chapter 10, it says, take nothing with you for the journey. Neither scrip nor stave. Scrip is the purse or the bag. In the great debate about evangelical poverty in the 13th and 14th centuries, there was all kinds of ink and even some blood spilt over the issue of whether or not you could actually carry a purse. And the real problem was that there's a passage in the Gospels that describes Judas Iscariot as being the guy who is the sort of treasurer of the disciples. And he holds what in Latin were called loculotes. Remember these when we get to the uh, partner's tale. These are little, two of them, two little round purses. Okay, now what he's saying is he's a Judas Iscariot already. Now remember Judas when we get to the, uh, uh, when we get to the end of, end of the uh, story. And anyway, he goes out riding on page uh, 124, and he's riding through the uh, countryside at line 1375. 
And so befell that Onus on a day, the Sumner, ever waiting on his prey, rode for the Sumner an old widower, a Rebiba, feigning a cause. Now every now and then, Chaucer gives you one of these little situations and it has flashing neon lights that says, this is an iconographic tableau. Appreciate me. Remember the beginning of the Knight's Tale? Where, where Theseus comes riding back, you know, and he's, he's uh, conquered all the reign of Feminia, and he's, he's gotten married to Hippolyta, and everything is, is uh, dandy. And some little, poor little women in black are all weeping, and they come up to him, and they're weeping because uh, this horrible king has killed their sons and, and, and husbands and won't even let them bury the body and so on. They're an example, that is to say, of the most vulnerable, the most those elements in society that most are in need of chivalric protection. And so Theseus is going to reach out to them. Well, here you have the Sumner looking around for a little old lady that he can mug. This is what the text says, right? It's a very big thing. It's about, it's about a, that truth. He went around feigning a cause, for he would breathe, and happened that he saw before him read, a gay, gay man under a forest cedar. Here's a yeoman. Now, what is a yeoman? You've seen all the Robin Hood movies. Yeomans are these guys who uh, wander at will through 19th century medieval literature. <laughs> and they're, they're always kind of hunter types, and they have bows and arrows. And, and uh, uh, this guy. He's a woodsman. And they're so indeterminate that you may remember, there is a yeoman on the pilgrimage, and the best thing that Chaucer could say about him, the deepest remark is, well could he bear his tackle yeomanly. That is to say, that was a real yeoman. He, and it, I bet you've used this phrase, yeoman service. He does yeoman service. Does anybody here know what the hell yeoman service is? No, it's serving in a yeoman-like or yeomanly manner, uh, is what I would say. So anyway, this yeoman uh, comes out of the uh, comes out of the uh, woods, and he's dressed all in green. Now you've noticed that I try to point out to you certain examples in which medieval material and spiritual culture varies dramatically from that in the 20th and 21st century. And hunting seems to be one of these. Now, these days, hunters apparently go around wearing bright colors. You know. Now, this is so that they will not shoot each other. In the, in the Middle Ages, you didn't need to worry about this quite so much. And in fact, you didn't want the animals to see you. So you would wear green. There's an article by somebody or another called Why the Devil Wears Green. And of course, the reason that the devil wears green is because he's out hunting. You know what he's hunting for, Mr. Shiver? He is hunting for you. You know, yeah, that's right. And, and it's going to turn out with this Sumner that he actually uh, gets it. Well, he runs into it and says, well, my God, this is great. Sir, quote the Sumner, hail and well ataka. Welcome, quote hey, and every good fellow. Where readest thou under this green wood shall? Where are you going? Now, I haven't actually made a study of this. If you're desperate for a topic for a final paper, here I'll throw one out for you. 
My theory is that there are more interrogative sentences in this uh, tale than in any other tale of Shakespeare. I mean, the, the Sumner here is a great inquisitor, investigator. He wants to know about everything about this yeoman. Like, where is he from? And uh, you know, what's his social security number? Yeah. Uh, what's his batting average? All these kinds of things. One question uh, after another. And this is, uh, we'll see in a second, uh, that this is uh, thematic. He says, well, you know, what do you do for a living? And he says, oh, uh, uh, he says, I'm a, I'm a bailiff. What is a bailiff? Well, we don't have bailiffs anymore, so we need to know. A bailiff is somebody who looks out after somebody else's property. Sort of a, an estate agent, I guess I would say. I'm taking care of this place, but there's some big boss back there who at any time could come and claim his property. So he says, I'm a bailiff. And the Sumner says, oh, <laughs> he says, that's funny. I'm a bailiff too. And, and the, the friar says, the reason he says that That is to say, he wouldn't use the word summoner. So we have, again, this distinction between the letter and the spirit in which language is now being used, what, not to clarify and to get at truth, but rather to obfuscate truth. Well, he says, by God, rather, he says it in French, de pardieu, quote this game, and dare a brother, thou art a bailey, and he am another. He says, this is great. We ought to have a sort of union uh, of the bailiffs union sort of right out here. And I, I sort of uh, industrial brotherhood uh, carefully. Notice this is another one of the brotherhood tales of Chaucer. Brotherhood is almost always disastrous in Chaucer. Formal brotherhood. Brotherhood is the basis of Christianity in theory, right? But every time anybody gets up and says, Man, I am your sworn brother. You can expect trouble. The first two did it were Absalom and, and uh, were, uh, were Arsida and Palamon. Their brotherhood lasted about 15 lines, I think. This one lasted a little more. He says, well, why don't we form a little local group uh, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the brotherhood here? Well, he doesn't really answer him here. And they move along, and it says, in dalliance they read and forth and play now, the summoner, which that was as full of jangles, as full of venom been these wary angles, and ever inquiring upon everything, constantly asking questions, one after another, says, tell me, brother, where is it that you live? Now, this is another one of these things. I don't want you breaking your arm, congratulating yourself on getting the irony. The devil is now talking to, to you're having a conversation with the devil, and you tell where do you live? I need to know your address in case I want to come and visit you someday. He says, well, it's far in the north country. He says, I live a long, long way away. But he's still, he'll be my broker. Uh, <laughs> you can always tell from the blush. I wouldn't know otherwise, you know, where, even, even where it is. Um, he says, uh, he, he keeps asking. He, uh, he, he keeps asking questions. And he's a little bit. Uh, he's a little bit uh, uh, in, indirect uh, uh, about it. Um, he says, "Well, you make much money." No, not really very much money. 
kind of odd. I have to really work for everything I get, you know, and it's not, it's not really easy. Yeah, I know how it is these days. This Northeast Territory isn't what it used to be, this kind of thing. You know. They have this very interesting uh, 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 commercial uh, conversation, and then they enter into what I have to regard. Don't take this as uh, indicative of my political point of view or anything like that. They, 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 they enter into what I would call a Marxist bargain. That is to say, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. What they say is this, look, we're both in this uh, bailiff business, which they both recognize as meaning extortion. Let's see what we can get during the course of the day. And then at the end of the afternoon, we will split everything up. Says, well, that's uh, fine with me, but he says, Gee, I, I really wish you would tell me, you know, more about you. Keep asking question after question. Okay, now, you're on horseback. You're r riding along. You're looking for a little old lady to extort. A guy in green comes up and has a curious conversation with you. And after about an hour of deep interrogation, he says to you, look, do you want me to tell you who I am? You say, yeah, yeah. He says, says I am the devil from hell. That's what he says in so many words. Now, what is your reaction going to be? I'll let you ponder on that for a moment while we examine what the Sumner's reaction is. What is the Sumner's reaction? You're kidding! Stone the groves, he said. He said, boy, you really pulled the wool over my eyes. You know, I thought you looked like a man. You know, you have a man is shop. As, you know, look, well, I hope your answer is, under these circumstances, I would get the hell out of there as rapidly as possible. It never even occurs to the Sumner. What he's interested in is the extraordinary fact <laughs> that you couldn't tell from the shape of the devil that he actually was a devil. And you see how this is fitting in with all these themes that I am uh, trying to persuade you of <laughs> here. I think it's really... Uh, it's, it's really great. Ah, quote the Sumner, Benedicite. What say they? If when ye were a yeoman, truly, ye been a man is sharper as well as he. You, you have the sh outward shape of a man as well as anybody else. So that theme is then dropped. And they're just kind of marching on and looking to see who can they extort. And I've got to move on myself because I haven't left myself enough time. But uh, notice the first thing that happens is they come to a 14th century truck driver with his 14th century truck stuck in a 14th century <laughs> ditch, and he's doing some good 14th century swearing. Remember the, of the prioress what it was said? Her greatest oath was but be St. Eloy, as though that was to say, oh, pshaw, uh, go away or I'll hit you with my purse. Now notice that, the, <laughs> notice that the 14th century truck driver says the same thing. You know, maybe this puts that in a di different uh, context, but he is really mad. And he says, the devil take you. Hay and, and, and cattles, the horses, and, and, and all, all this. And the Sumner thinks, that's absolutely marvelous. After all, we're in this field. That's a lot of money. A whole truck load full of cake. Did you hear that, brother devil? He just said, the devil take me. That's what the devil says. The devil, yeoman. He says, wait a minute. He said, just hang on. I'm not quite sure that this is what he meant. And you get these words, intent, about five times in here. What was his intent? Just then the horses do this tremendous lurch 
And the truck comes out of the ditch. And he says, those are the greatest horses in the world. Ah, me own a lyric boy. Hey, Brock. Hey, Scott. What's spared you for the stoners? And so he says, really great. And so the devil has to turn to the Sumner and say, look, what did I tell you? The Carol Spack O thing, but he meant another. He said one thing, but he meant another. Now, this is almost the definition of allegory, poetic allegory, is it not? That is to say, you have something that is on the surface and you need to look behind it. He's also suggesting that in ordinary discourse, a literalist principle is, I mean, how many times a day do you say, oh, I could have died? Or, you know, oh, uh, I, I would die of embarrassment if such and such a thing happened to me. That is not literally true. And it's not literally true what the 14th century truck driver says anyway. But the uh, Sumner thinks this is one hell of a way to run a railroad. I mean, if you're actually running through, going through the countryside, and somebody says, the devil take you, and the devil will not take you, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to show you how to do this. And so you now get uh, the, the most dramatic of all uh, uh, Chaucer's rent-a-widows. There's a sort of a really pathetic little old rent-a-widow who lives by the side of the road. And not merely does she not have two dimes rubbed together, she has angina pectoris, so that when she moves, you know, it, it hurts. Uh, and this guy comes up and knocks on the door and says, I've got, it's like Senator McCarthy, I have a list here of all the crimes that you've committed. I, I think you're in there with some friar or priest. The, the friar forgets for a moment that the friar is telling the friar's story. Yeah. But anyway, that's all right. Just, you know, a slip of the tongue, never mind, never mind that. He says, you still owe me a lot of money from the last time that you committed adultery. Now, Mabel, that's her name. Her name is Mabel. I mean, he really lays it on thick, you know. But she's 102 years old. Now, you know, she's not committing adultery with a friar or anybody else. And she says that. She says, never in my life have I been guilty of any of this. And he said, well, that doesn't matter. Just give me your money. Uh, and she says, well, you know, honestly, I don't have any money. She says, I'm going to take away your Nua pan. Every now and then in Chaucer, there's one of these blinking lights. There are about five of them that I haven't solved yet. This is certainly one of them. Obviously, this was some great joke that was being, I don't know what this Nua pan means, because we don't even know whether the word means pan a piece of cloth or pan as in pot and pan. But the idea is I'm going to repossess the refrigerator uh, on, on, a, on, on account of this. And she says, well, you're just so t terrible. The devil take you and take my pan uh, also. Now, at this point, the devil does hear his name mentioned. And no, no, go back and look at this passage because it's brilliant. He says, Mabelie, <laughs> that's her name, says, is this your intent? Did you? I heard what you said. You said the devil take him. Did you really mean that? Now she answers in a most scrupulous way. She says, yes, the devil take him, pan and all, unless he him repent. Unless he repent, carrying him off. At which point the, the Sumner says, repent? Me? Screw you. You know, you're a little baby. He says, he shrew, he shrew these shrifty patters ever chun. 
It's almost as coarse as when the monk says, let Austin have his swing to him, reserve it. You know, it's kind of, he's like, I'm not going to have anything to do with any of these uh, shrift fathers, that is to say, with anything to do with confession. Now think about the moral situation for just a moment. I've already told you this, but I really want you to think about this. If I'm right, if I'm right for Chaucer, the moral economy of penance, this kind of moral situation that he's dealing with, is a social problem of the most acute kind. If you are a Sumner, and you have a Sumner inside you, I already told you, you have a Sumner inside you, a Friar inside you, an Adam inside you, an Eve inside you, a Lady Philosophy inside you, a Boethius inside you, no wonder it feels kind of full. If you are a Sumner, do you need to repent? Absolutely. You certainly need to repent. But the question that Chaucer is then asking is imagine that this Sumner actually did get religion in, in some sense. And he looked around, and the only person he could find to administer the sacrament of penance was like the friar in the Sumner's Tale. That is somebody who was only uh, interested in, in the uh, money. I mean, he says, anyway, he says, I'm not going to repent. And so the devil says, okay, well, just so long as you've made a reason, everything's fine. And he says, we're going to go down to hell. Uh, a little bit earlier, you were very curious about you know, what devils eat and what they wear and what our social customs are. You're going to know more about devils before you're through than does Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Inferno, or Virgil, who invented the underworld in the Aeneid. And there are n uh, other nifty little things about it at the end. When Jesus is crucified, he's crucified between two thieves, remember, one of whom... Penitent thief, get it? Get it? We have a penitent thief. And what Jesus says to the penitent thief is, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. What the devil says to the impenitent thief is, tonight you'll be with me in hell. You go to heaven in the daytime, but you go to hell at night. This is one of those little messes that only the great Geoffrey Chaucer uh, could uh, pull uh, off. And then at the very end of this tale, as indeed at the end of all three tales, the speaker addresses a moral. The wife of the best says, the moral of my story is uh, that uh, Jesus ought to kill off everybody, who, all those men who don't uh, submit to their wives. That's an interesting interpretation of the wife, wife of the best story. Uh, the Sumner has a similar interpretation, but the interpretation here of the friar uh, is, uh, is this. He says, prayeth that the Sumner's hymn repent of here misdaid air that the, fa the feigned him hint. That's true. It's true of all Sumners. It's true of everybody that in this theological system, uh, you've got to uh, repent. But imagine the paradox that I just gave you a moment ago. Now think how rich the various themes of surface and substance, the letter and the spirit, are how, how deeply they are explored in the three tales of this fragment, sometimes comically, sometimes tragically, sometimes learnedly, as with regard to the scriptural exegesis of the wife of Bath's tale, sometimes vulgarly, as in the spiritual meaning of the farce in, in, the, in the summer's tale. It's an amazing tour de force, and given the fact that it's right at the heart of the tale, <coughs> wherever we put it, so to speak, it's going to be somewhere in that big center of, of the tale. 
I'm convinced uh, that it's uh, one of Chaucer's most carefully thought out uh, intellectual statements about his, uh, pro his project. 